You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent bi-weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number four. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, Sana How are you guys? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yes, very good, thank yeah? you. Very well. A bit tiring this holiday season, but I, I hope you all survived the first section of this holiday season. Yeah, that's one fine. Piece. Yes, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. I'm enjoying it. Mm, no yeah, need for emergency good. health services, I hope? Not yet. <laughs> no, luckily. Have you guys seen uh, Edzard Ernst um, quoting uh, some some weird claims on his blog from uh, Collected from Homeopath? No. Um, um, yeah, I think we can we could uh, um, link uh, put a link to the show notes um, on his blog. He warned everyone to keep their nux vomica, uh, homeopathic remedy, at hand for detox purposes. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that makes you. Yeah, that that makes you. Um, um, of course. Um, this is for a hangover. Feel- no. Yeah, I think, and and also, I think it's also used for um, for other detox purposes. You know, the bullshit ones. Oh. Yeah. By the way, um, I think he really hit the nail on the, in the head with that um, because this time of the year is when all the bogus claims and and those detoxification products are are thrown at you, mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so this Christmas time, of, of course. At Christmas time, what we do is eating ourselves to death. Mm. So nobody should forget it's it's all just nonsense, uh, because no specific uh, specification of toxins uh, to get rid of are are normally given. And uh, I have to warn everyone that um, the best way to detoxificate yourself is to use your body organs, like your kidney, both of them, <laughs> and your liver. They are doing your the job well if you're healthy normally, yeah. um, so just do with those. Yeah, but it's it's been quite a year for for skeptics, wasn't it? Yes, and for science, I think. Yeah, and for science as well. Yeah. Oh, what a what achievements on 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 um, space exploration! Yeah. Wow. We, we <laughs> have and um, we have one of those. We're very European with the ESA. Uh, uh, landing on a comet, which was uh, great. Or was that in December? But it was uh, last. Year. I think it was I, I, in November 2014. All right, but there was a fo- there so, was yeah. been fo- has been follow ups t- during the year, and it's been a great uh, scientific Absolutely. achievement. Absolutely, uh, not to talk about flying past the most mysterious planet. So uh, sorry, it was downgraded to to a dwarf planet, Pluto, mm-hmm. a flyby. Yeah. Um yeah, amazing stuff. Yeah, very finding exciting. finding water on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> and uh just recently, um SpaceX did a huge thing, a huge leap towards the next yes, generation of space of space flight. They did, it was great. They actually landed the first stage of Falcon 9 on its 
on its feet. Like the can I say feet of of, of, I, of I don't know, but like it should be like, rocket. like it should be. This is like I learned from uh, uh, in my childhood. That's what the way rockets should land, but uh, it has taken until now to make it uh, reality. Yeah, of course, Amazon did. They did something similar recently, but so SpaceX did it from a hundred kilometers, and and I think it was about ten ten times the speed of speed of sound. So that was amazing. So that that was just mind blowing. Um, in terms of uh, skepticism, uh, I think homeopathy was pretty big this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the uh, the Australian uh, Na- National Health and uh, Medical Research Councils very well picked up um, internationally uh, COVID um, yep. statement. Yeah. And it it was picked up by all the all the world's national um, uh, bodies of the same kind, yes. um, or uh, not all of them, but but many of them, of course. So that was pretty big. And recently, the 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 Good Thinking Society's achievement with uh, with the NHS that uh, they are reconsidering uh putting homeopathy on a blacklist mm, that would uh, be a biggest milestone yeah absolutely so so that is something to look forward to in the year 2016 yeah and um do you remember the one with the uh, meat bowel cancer it was all over the news all over the planet that uh, it was published in the lancet that bowel cancers can be linked to the consumption of red meat and uh, processed meat and stuff. Do you remember that? Yeah, it it was. It, yes, I do remember. It was uh, not not that long ago. It was uh, quite all over the news. Yeah, but why it's skepticism related is because uh, it was so badly misrepresented by the the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and this got misrepresented as being a very high risk yes. of getting. Yeah bowel cancer uh, if you eat so t- t- too much processed meat there is a certainty in the link between the two but the amount of risk that you put yourself into is not as high because they they got into the category it's it's category a i think group one sorry so it's put in group one which represents all the the, the different factors to be linkable to different cancers but it doesn't say anything about how much risk there is. No. It's in the same category as uh, cigarettes, smoking, and uh, exposed being exposed to sunlight and stuff. But it's not it's not the same thing. So the amount of risk you put in put yourself into is not the same when you when you smoke and when you eat red meat. Yeah, but I, I can understand that it's easy to misunderstand this if you, if you're not yeah. if you're not reading it thoroughly if you're not uh, understanding the exact nuance what it said it's so the risk is very well established but the risk is very small and that's two different yeah. things. Before we leave uh, science, there was another news science uh, thing uh, this year with a with a European uh, angle that I'd like to mention, and that's the CRISPR Cas9 technology or CRISPR as it's known now more because it's shorter, which is, it's not, it wasn't invented this year, but this is how you can edit or cut and paste in DNA and remove certain genes and add certain genes. And this year, there was a lot of European research that showed how useful it can be. So this is just, this is really revolutionary and it will 
make it so much I'm, I'm sure it will change a lot of how how we can uh, I wouldn't say manipulate uh, because that sounds nefarious but change genes and DNA in in uh, plants and in even in animals going forward and also of course used mm-hmm. to to cure p- uh, diseases that has been incurable before yeah it's been great to see all these developments in 2015 so looking forward to 2016 and the reason why we're doing this is because this is the last episode of 2015 of course it's only the fourth uh, altogether <laughs> yeah I, I think next year we will have a reason to do more uh, more of a of a new year's episode but since we've been around for so short a time we will save it for next year yeah um but um, we are getting more and more feedback as we go along. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which is great. Uh, we just received uh, a nice email from Tomasz Witkowski, who's uh, from the Polish Skeptics Club. And he congratulates us uh, for starting the show and trying to give some uh, momentum to the movement on a European level. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to to get this feedback from the very people we want to do this for. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's, and, he's the guy behind the book Psychology Gone Wrong, I think it's called. Yes, with uh, Maciej Zatonski, I think, That's right. uh, if I pronounce his name well. Psychology Gone Wrong, The Dark Side of uh, Science and Therapy. And then that book ran out pretty quickly at the European Skeptics Congress in London yes, this September. But in his email, uh, Thomas uh, also proposed a topic along with, um, with a film dealing with it that's uh, exorcism so we'll try and look around to see what different experts on the continent have to say about that uh, probably including himself mm-hmm. uh, yeah we also had uh, some feedback from brian ego of the glasgow skeptics in the pub movement who uh, just uh, wrote us and told us uh, how, how nice he thinks the show is and what good initiative it is and how we are addressing a niche that hasn't been addressed before. So thank you very much. And we will try to live up to that. Yeah. And just for, for those who don't know where Glasgow is, it's um, it's in Scotland. <laughs> it is in Scotland, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And we have also received an email from uh, Paul Sweeney. Um, who lives in Dublin Island, uh, who, I'm just going to quote him here, He's um, he said, while I embrace the idea of open and fair-minded critical thinking, um, I am not at all optimistic about the majority of people becoming critical thinkers. Most people I know are the complete opposite. Uh, narrow-minded, full of fallacious arguing, and worst of all, an inert attribute of jumping to conclusion with limited information. And so he um, was asking for our opinion on, on the subject. Um, so what we decided to do, instead of replying to him via email, to have sort of a brief discussion on the show instead. And uh, I think it's pretty easy to slide down this you know, somewhat pessimistic path of saying, well, you can't, you can't really make people uh, critical thinkers and, you know, um, let's just not bother or whatever. But I think this is one of the biggest reasons why we started this podcast to kind of promote the critical thinking, to get people interested and involved. And also, um, people do get inspired by sort of big names in our movement. And um, I think we shouldn't be discouraged I think he's right in a way. I mean, we will never win this. There will always be people who who believe in woo, who are 
easily misled and there will always be frauds but that doesn't mean we we should give up we we that's why we're here that's what why we're needed and we will always be needed and i think i'm 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 a, a helpless optimist about this stuff the reason for that is i really believe and i'm i'm trying to to use this word cautiously but i really believe in education yeah and uh i see many examples that education and and child child rearing in in general can provide people with critical thinking skills our minds our brains are not wired for critical thinking we have to learn that applying critical thinking doesn't necessarily mean we are leading a life without values and that is some sometimes and very often absolutely mixed up does it make sense what i'm saying yeah yes of course i mean we you can still have values you can appreciate art you can be humanistic that's part of it uh, it doesn't it doesn't exclude one or the other that's the, that's a fear that you often hear that if you're so rational uh, you don't see how beautiful the world is etc no we do see that but we can you can still be rational about it yeah absolutely um richard dawkins puts it very eloquently in uh, unweaving the rainbow that understanding stuff does not render it less beautiful hmm. yes, very- it's the opposite so yeah very true so, very true and and when you you apply the method that brings you the real information the 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 real solution to problems instead of the fake made up ones the real answer to the questions uh, and you can rely on it because it's been tested that's when you start to really understand stuff and when you start to understand stuff it becomes even more beautiful we have also been contacted by uh, Diana Barbosa and Concept from the Portuguese skeptical movement. They are really promoting us uh, fiercely at the moment and we thank you very much for that. And uh, we are looking to find uh, an interview date with Diana so we can bring her on the show as well. So thank you very much for for what you're doing Diana. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, if anybody has ideas or or suggestions reg- uh, regarding the show, uh whom to interview or or anything, just feel free to contact us. We are very busy at the moment with interviews. Uh we have quite a lineup of of people to to be interviewed in the future, but that shouldn't stop you from from making suggestions if you you know somebody who who should be introduced to all the European skeptics we can reach with the show. Yeah, and you can contact us by emailing us on info at the esp.eu. Uh, we've also got a Twitter account and it's at espodcast underscore eu. You can find us on Facebook and we've got the uh, webpage the esp.eu. Yeah, let's um, let's start the show, shall we? <laughs> yes. So first, uh why not run through the segments we're going to have on today's show. As usual, uh Yalana kicks off the show with the commemoration of a famous person to whose life this day, that's the 30th of December, had quite a great influence. 
Then we're going to take a look at a few European sceptical events, past and future, the latter being the ones announced recently. Uh, something to look forward to. Moving on, we're going to be talking about some scepticism-related news from across Europe. And then, like on the last show, we have two interviews lined up for today. A longer, slightly more in-depth interview with the founder of the Russian Skeptic Society and host of several Russian skeptical podcasts, Kirill Alferov. He was also the chief organizer of the first Skeptic Society uh, conference in Moscow, a great event that had a sequel this November. After this first interview, Yelena will enlighten us about yet another logical fallacy, This time, it will be the one called Argument from Authority, or many other names, uh, if you like. See how it can be spotted and avoided. Then, we're going to be moving on to our second interview on our segment introduced on the last episode where we provide short interviews focusing on a certain issue, reporting from events, etc. The second in the series will be an interview I made with Melissa Hyten, one of the speakers at the first ever Wikipedia Science Conference in London this September. After the second interview, we'll listen to Pontus telling us about someone who's been really wrong lately somewhere in Europe. And let me tell you, this time he's found someone very influential at that. Of course, as always, Yalana will have a nice quote for us to finish the show with. And if you're ready, why not get started right now. Enjoy. So, Yelena, uh, why not tell us about someone with relevance to this day, the 30th of December? So I will. Uh, so today I uh, will be talking about Grigory Raspu- Rasputin. Yeah, yeah, Rasputin. <laughs> oh, that's Bill anyway. M, right? <laughs> um, so that's the guy, and what can I tell you about Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin? Well, we know for sure that he was born on the 21st of January 1869, and he was a Russian peasant and a mystical faith healer and a trusted friend to the family of Nicholas II, the last Tsar of Russia. And uh, he became an influential figure in St. Petersburg, especially after August 1915, when Nicholas took command of the army at the front. Um, there is so much uncertainty over Rasputin's life and the degrees of influence he exerted over the um, Tsar and Alexandra Fyodorovna, who was Tsar's wife, Tsaritsa. <laughs> um, and uh, accounts are often based on dubious memoirs, hearsay and legends. And while his influence and position may have been exaggerated, he had become uh, synonymous with power, debauchery and lust and his presence played a significant role in the increasing um, unpopularity of the imperial couple. And I think in, in many ways he, he was a bit of a scapegoat, because um, at the time um, the um, people were becoming more and more uh, unhappy with the uh, royal uh, ruling, and, and they didn't want Tsar to be in charge, and so they blamed Rasputin for a lot of what was going on at the time in Russia. 
In February 1887, Rasputin married uh, Praskovia Fyodorovna Dubrovina, and together they had a couple of kids. Um, and then, in 1892, Rasputin abruptly left his village, his wife, children and parents, and spent several months in a monastery in Verkhaturiya. And then, when he came back from the monastery, he became a, a zealous convert. He claimed all sorts of things, and uh, people said that he had healing powers, um, and he also claimed himself vision of Our Lady of Kazan, it's a saint, um, and said that he's, it, she turned him towards the life of religious uh, mystic. He traveled around the country uh, after that as well, and in his travels he ended up in um, the capital um, of, of Russia at the time, and was introduced to royal royalty. Um, so back in the day, the Russian sort of high society was very much into mystics. And so Rasputin um, was accepted with open arms by the Tsar family. So because he claimed he could heal, he have powers to heal, um, when Tsar's um, son became ill, um, Rasputin was called in to uh, help heal the child, uh, his name was Alexei, and um, uh, the boy apparently he received an injury which caused him painful bleeding, and it was not publicly known. But he um, he had a hemophilia B, a disorder that was widespread among the European royalty, and when the doctors could not supply a cure, the desperate Tsarina Tsar, and Tsar looked for other help, and so Rasputin was said to uh, possess the ability to heal through prayer and was able to clear, uh, calm the parents and to give the boy some relief, uh, in spite of the doctor's prediction that he would die. Uh, however, some skeptics would say at the time that all he did was stop the boy uh, taking aspirin, because aspirin, as we know, um, is an anti-aggregant and had blood thinning properties, and so obviously that was the worst thing that the, uh, the boy could take at the time, so by stopping him taking the drug, he inadvertently made him better, but obviously for people outside, he seemed to be, you know, he was seen to be a healer. Um, so then his influence kind of increased over, over time on, on the uh, royal couple, and uh, because he received a certain uh, privileges um, with the royal couple, uh, he was he became more and more unpopular with the rest um, of the people. And um, eventually, unfortunately, unfortunately, he actually was assassinated on the thirtieth of December, um, nineteen sixteen. Now, he's given a lot of predictions in his time. You know, there, there were a lot of people who were saying, you know, this going to happen and that going to happen. And one of his predictions actually came true somewhat. And I think maybe it follows from his experience of the, uh, of the times and uh, what he knew about the country and, and the structure and stuff. So he predicted that the Russian Empire will fall and it will be the last era for the Tsar to rule the country. And it was in fact true. And how ironic it is uh, that Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR, commonly known as the Soviet Union, was actually formed on December the 30th, 1922 as well. So there's two, you know, big things that happened on, on that day. Wow. And we can say now that Rasputin's prediction um, became true. Rigori Rasputin, everybody. Yeah. Wow! Wasn't there also a lot of of uh, a lot of legend around how he was murdered? Oh, I seem to remember he was both 
shot and stabbed and drowned and still came he back. He was, yeah. So I, I read like a little bit about, about his death. He was shot a few times because first time when he, they shot him, he didn't die. And then he was beaten because they did, they wanted to make sure that he definitely is dead. And that, and then they drowned his body in the river, but then it floated. So yeah, it's. Okay. I have, I have one question too. Yeah. Since, um, I think everyone remembers, uh, the Bonnie M hit, Rasputin. Is it true or not true that he was a lover to the wife of the Tsar? Well, and so this is one of the speculations that isn't uh, confirmed by, you know, 100% confirmed. It's one of those that, you know, okay. he could have been or, or whatever. And um, I can see that going both ways because he spent a lot of time with her and she trusted him because obviously uh, healed, in yeah. inverted comma, uh, her, her son. And um, he became a very close advisor in the later days. So a take-home message, people. <laughs> Even though Bonnie M is very entertaining, be sceptical about the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Let's move on to events, past and future, uh, happening in Europe. Well, the first thing we have is uh, from uh, Portugal, uh, they uh, the skeptics movement in Portugal, Comcept, always have a, a celebration around the winter solstice, and uh, this year they had it on the Saturday before, on the nineteenth of December, and they dedicated the session to Freemasonry, where they visited the Freemasonry Museum in Lisbon, and uh, as I understand it, had a had a good time. Mm. In January, on the sixteenth of January, they will. Uh, uh, resume their normal skeptics in the pub which normally are in Porto so if you're in Portugal uh, look them up uh, and join that I'm sure it's great fun yeah and um, if you want to join chat skeptics uh, there is a great opportunity coming up in May uh, that is the 13th skepticon uh, outside Prague in a small town called Przybram uh, probably did a terrible job at pronouncing that but uh please forgive me that's organized by the czech skeptics club sisyphos it'll take place between the 20th and 22nd of may 2016 with several public lectures uh, given by well-known local skeptics uh, so it's just been announced uh, recently and if any of the listeners are in the vicinity at the time feel free to drop in it'll most likely be all in czech though but uh, we know from experience that these guys are happy to talk to you in English. Uh, so do not hesitate to contact them and uh, looking forward to uh, what people are reporting from that event. And also coming up uh, in 2016, QED returns October 14, 15, 16, 2016. And it's back in Manchester, England, uh, Mercury Piccadilly Hotel. An event we've been all waiting for, um, QED, Question, Explore, Discover. The uh, tickets will be on sale shortly. Um, I think in, it says on their website tickets will be going on sale in the new year. So hopefully January time. Please book early to avoid disappointment. There'll be a, a range of fantastic speakers. Um, there'll be a gala dinner with some entertainment and, and a, a possibility and opportunity to meet great people, connect with 
freethinker, skeptics, like-minded people. Um, and I can't not mention, and I'm sure we have talked about it before, the fact that all of us met at QED and we owe QED a lot and it's a, a really brilliant event and nothing can replace meeting people face to face. You know, just being there and listening to somebody speak on stage and exchange questions and uh, ideas, it, it's brilliant. So highly recommended uh, for your diary next year. Don't let anyone or anything stop you from being there. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll be there for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, they actually are at the moment arranged a special room rate for those who attend Q will attend QED, so we can all book uh, nice and early. Um, and if you go to their website qedcon.org, uh, you'll be able to see well, some information that they already put up there um, alongside uh, what to need, you need to do in order to book uh, special rates. Um, and enjoy! Hope to see you there! Yes, absolutely! Manchester, England, England. <laughs> do you remember that one? I do! I do! Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. Let's move on to some news items we have prepared for the, this week. Yes, there is a popular supplement called Vita Pro, which is sold in all the Scandinavian countries by a Norwegian company. But the Swedish newspaper Expressen had a very good expose regarding possible side effects and the marketing me methods they're using on the 26th of December. Sus suspected severe side effects include uh, liver problems, allergic reactions, and the article concludes that it is an expensive, unnecessary, and potentially dangerous product. This supplement apparently consists mostly of different fish products, of fish oils, vitamins, and extracts from several trees and plants. The paper has also scrutinized this company's marketing methods and found that not only are they making claims that are borderline to illegal, but also they are routinely paying for positive testimonies. So they don't have any, any uh, scientific studies behind it, it's just sold through testimonies and they're paying to get them. Several celebrities have appeared in commercials under the slogan, It works for me. And we all feel rather <laughs> allergic against yeah. that phrase. Some celebrities have, have stated that they got very well paid and they're not actually using the supplement. And several normal users, if you will, uh, behind the testimonials have stated that they got uh, quite uh, good benefits out of giving those testimonies, including free, free supplies of the product. So it's making quite some noise in the social media at the moment. And uh, the we skeptics in Sweden are particularly happy that the reporter behind the article uh, has already received the prize for Enlightener of the Year, which is our yearly uh, yearly prize, in 2008 for other work. Her name is Anna Besseen, and I'm very happy that she continues to focus on healthcare and healthcare frauds with a very sceptical outset. Stephen Hawking launches award for science communication bearing his name. It's an award for science communication uh, bearing the name of the renowned English theoretical physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking that was launched to the public 
on Wednesday, December the 16th. Um, so basically, the medal was created to applaud the efforts of those who are promoting public awareness of science through arts, cinema and music. And so the award will be given out next summer in the third Starmus International Science and Arts Festival in Tenerife to deserving individuals in the following categories. The scientific community, the film community and the art community. And the medal featured portrait of Hawking, created by Leonov, who is a scientist, a Russian scientist. So here we go, guys. Um, hopefully, maybe even the film community. Hmm, who knows? Um, we've got so many great movies that that came out recently. Um, the The Martian that was pretty awesome. You know, maybe it was a, it will be awarded a medal. Nobody mm, knows. Yeah. And so this um, Stamos Festival is a festival that, that would then, you know, show the various uh, movies and that they'll have exhibitions of uh, arts, etc., um, that aimed at promoting science. And they already had a few festivals in the past, but this award will be introduced uh, next year. The first time will be introduced next year. And uh, you can actually um, explore the Stamos Award um, on the following website, www.starmus.com. And the next um, festival is planned for the 27th of June until the 2nd of July, 2016 in Tenerife. Great. There has been a great thing uh, going on uh, among Spanish scientists. Um, a group of uh, Spanish scientists issued a statement and uh, a petition that that um, comes along with it um, to condemn pseudoscience and magical therapies in uh, in, in healthcare. And uh, currently, there are more than two thousand one hundred people who have already signed the petition. Uh, among them, medical doctors, university professors, and many other people of high esteem. Um, even El País. Uh, the highest circulation daily newspaper published their statement with uh, names of prominent figures at the bottom of uh, as signees. Um, it is all in Spanish, but the Italian website uh, queryonline.it and uh, SciCap did report on the petition itself. Unfortunately, it didn't get into English-speaking news outlets uh, so far. Um, the statement itself lists all the pseudoscientific claims that are well known for skeptics from vaccination myths, uh, homeopathic remedies, alternative treatments, etc. But that's probably more important that they particularly mention the proponents of bogus claims to be reaching higher levels in the bureaucratic system, thus putting millions of lives at a risk. This kind of statement is very rare and we hope to see much more of that coming out as we go along. So, well done, uh, and congratulations to Javier Burgos, uh, who who put together the whole, this whole thing, apparently, and more than 2,000 followers of this great initiative uh, launched on the 14th of December. As we talked about in the uh, last episode, uh, the Swedish government had to make a decision about how to treat anthroposophical remedies according to Swedish law. And unfortunately, they just have decided to to defer this uh, decision another six months. So they've issued a new exception from regulation 
for until the 30th of, New, of June next year, which means that uh, the Anthroposophical uh, Hospital just south of Stockholm will be able to continue for six months to sell these as if they were real medicine. Uh, so it, it was the coward's way out, I think, because the Swedish government got very hard pressure from from both from EU to make a decision, is this medicine or not, but also from the anthroposophical movement in Sweden to keep it, and they couldn't make up their minds, so they decided to, to, to postpone their decision another six months. So it's disappointing. It's not very unexpected, but it is uh, disappointing. We'll see how they will do when this exception runs out in June. Guys, um, do you consume poppy seeds at all? Absolutely. During, okay, um, throughout the year or 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 only um, during the holiday seasons? Uh, no, not not specifically on the holiday season. It's, it's occasionally. You know, you have it on 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 a bun. On a bun, but uh, the the one that's that's uh, just that's spread on the top of the bun. Exactly. Or... Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's the amount of poppy seed you consume. Uh, what about you, Yelena? Yeah, same. What if I told you that there are countries where people actually bake cakes and stuff with lots and lots of poppy seed in them? Uh, there is there is one thing in uh, in Hungary, for example, uh, that that we use. Uh, it's called kolach, and it's full of poppy seed. And this is to be intoxicated, then, or yeah, and that's the thing. But it's not only it's not only Hungarian cuisine. All over Europe, in Austria, Germany, Polish cuisine, um, Czech cuisine, and in many other countries, it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, does it work? But it uh, it shouldn't work because many people know that uh, opiates, uh, morphine, and uh, codeine are extracted from from uh, poppy seed pods. There is a milk-like substance in the poppy seed pods when they are still green and fresh and they extract the opiates from these this milk like substance but when it dries out poppy seeds shouldn't contain any of that mm. but turns out that they are contaminated sometimes and the amount of opiates carried on by the poppy seed itself is enough to to alter drug test results, uh, you wouldn't get uh, drugged by mm. by the poppy seed. But the drug test results they can measure the amount of opiates in your in your system. And how it turned out, and how how the whole thing emerged was in 1996 when um, a woman called Elaine on Seinfeld failed a drug test. The only thing she did was. Uh, consuming a poppy seed muffin <laughs> hmm. and of course being a skeptic you would you would go okay come on Th- uh, such a bad excuse mm-hmm. uh this is this, this shouldn't work turns out that it does work in 2003 in germany uh, they conducted an experiment and uh, they could still find after um consuming a poppy seed cake of, of different quantities they are tested urine samples after 24 hours and 48 hours. And for both tests, the positive outcome of the opium test was found as much as 10 micrograms per milliliter. Mm. 
even the Mythbusters, uh, a show we we all know, I I, I would assume, mm. um, tried that because because it was quite a widely circulating claim, and uh, they found the same thing, and um, in certain countries regulations had to be changed regarding drug tests uh, for for uh, sports people i just wanted to mention this because it's such a great thing that we have in common with many many european countries and it's this time of the year when it it it's brought up the most so let's move on to our interview shall we On every episode, we interview a person representing an organization or project, either from a certain European country or stretching across borders. This time, we have here with us on the show Kirill Alferov, founder of the Russian skeptic organization called Skeptic Society, host of several podcasts like the one called Skeptic, and also a chief organizer of the first Skeptic Society conference in Moscow in 2014. Kirill, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Well, uh, what's life for a skeptic these days in Russia? Well, uh, life as a skeptic these days in Russia is as tough as life of a skeptic anywhere else in the world. Okay. Uh, it seems to me that, from my, at least from my experience, that uh, skeptics pretty much face the same challenges that they do in other countries. It's uh, battling the unfounded... Uh, principles of something that has absolutely no evidence but that is very popular easily accessible to the public and very difficult to debunk so that basically i guess sums up everything of course uh, each country will have something specific to their uh, to their population something that people tend to believe in but the general challenges are all the same Mm -hmm. and uh, do you still live in russia no, actually, I've uh, moved to Germany. I now live in Berlin. So, yeah, my life has changed quite a bit in the past few months. This is actually not your first experience of living outside of the, the Russian Federation. No, no, not the first one. I lived for several years in the United States uh, okay. when I was a kid. But you were the one uh, founding the Russian Skeptics uh, Organization uh, called Skeptic Society, right? Um, mm-hmm. who's, who's running the organization now? Well, uh, the key thing when forming an organization was that it's not uh, contingent on just one person, that it's not uh, just me. And uh, so there are many people. First of all, uh, the foundation of Skeptic Society was in uh, starting meetings, regular meetups. That was something I considered to be very, very important. So that in starting Moscow, there would be a place every two weeks that skeptics would know they could come and find people who think the same or maybe bring their friends who want to debate somebody. Uh, And so that was the key thing, to have regular meetings no matter what. And then many people started organizing meetings under the umbrella of Skeptic Society in other cities across Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine. So there are right now about, I think, more than 10 cities. I'm not following this actually anymore, uh, like the amount of cities that uh, have meetings. But uh, last time I checked, it was like, I think, 11. Uh, So the organization from the get-go was distributed. And that was a key component so that if if you have many, many people working on it, it's less uh, probable 
that if someone leaves, the organization crumbles, which unfortunately is an experience in many, many countries, including Europe, where you would have a couple of activists running an organization, and they would be very happy doing what they do, and then in two years, something changes, and they're gone. Exactly. And the organization is gone, so I didn't want to do that. So to answer your question, right now, several activists are running the organization who uh, have taken the lead uh, since I left. And right now, uh, there is a second conference of Skeptic Society uh, that is run by guys who are now doing this after I've left. So I'm very, actually very happy that it took off. Oh, that, is, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So, so when you're starting up a new organization like that, uh, you, you say it's important to have lots of people involved so that there's a lot of people who can drive the organization. How did you find the other people? Well, I think that this is actually one of the most difficult things. Uh, I didn't specifically search for anybody, right? I just started the meetings. I announced them in, on the social media, of course. And I just waited who would come. The first meeting, just one person came. But to me, this was wild success because I thought nobody would come, <laughs> to be honest. And uh, uh, so, you know, I was dressed... Uh, in a, in a shirt with a bow tie. And when for the first two hours nobody showed up, I felt like an idiot. But I still was very happy that I did it because I could then say at least one skeptic was there and it was me. But then another guy showed up and it was really wonderful. And the next meeting, 12 more people came. And then once people started regularly attending, in about two months, I, you know, I started saying, okay, does anybody want to do a podcast together, for example? And then people would naturally, somebody who's interested will naturally come up and say, yeah, you know, I want to do that. Uh, of course, the difficult thing is to find people who will be really driven by this. And I have to be honest that among the team of people who were with me from the start, only several, like two or three people are really at it to this day. Uh, but of course, uh, some other people have joined. But um, I guess that's that's something that I didn't specifically go and search for. I wanted people to come to me, so to speak. Yeah, you mentioned uh, the the role of uh, social media in in organizing the the whole kind of movement in in Russia. Is it still run on that basis, or it's it's more formal? Are you still communicating with them on a daily basis? Yeah, I mean, not I guess not on a daily basis. I'm still communicating. Uh, and in fact, my position, as I said, is to try not to control them, but to say, okay, guys, now you're on your own. If you want a conference, do that. Do yeah. the conference. And they started doing it themselves. I'm not really involved in the conference. And that is a conscious decision. Uh, but uh, to comment the social media stuff, it's actually very interesting. Now think about it. The United States has a pretty old skeptical movement compared to European ones, right? So we have a skeptical movement that started back in the 70s where there were no computers, there was no social media, and people were just meeting up in their local bar or wherever, and they would talk to each other, and then they would go, and some famous people would get on TV. That was the way uh, critical thinking was you know, developing as a movement. But nowadays we have social media, and although it can be very, very helpful, the problem that I see with it is that it can be also very detrimental to the movement, as people will tend to just sit in their social media, exchange comments, and never do anything. So although I consider social media to be very helpful, one of the, like, the, the reason why I decided to come up with uh, regular meetups is so that we go outside the internet. Mm -hmm. Is that we don't like just debate people in comments. We face them. Come yeah. to our meetings, and people would actually come and we talk face-to-face. -face. And that is very, very valuable. 
Whenever you go to a skeptical group on the social media, people there are very ready to put forward arguments. But the problem is that very often people read materials and they consider themselves to be debate experts. Because, hey, you know, I read, I read Carl Sagan. <laughs> I read everything. I've watched everything. So I'll bring it on. I can do this. But in reality, when you're faced with a person who is giving you arguments, very often, if you're not experienced, if you don't know what you're doing, you will not be able to answer normally. So we had a very uh, funny meeting, and uh, that was a meeting dedicated to common objections to scientific skepticism. And there are many, many common objections that you can uh, see in real life when people say, well, how do you know that you know it, or nobody knows anything, or whatever. There are many common objections from uh, people who are not uh, acquainted with this concept. And so I decided to run a sort of uh, a brainstorming session, like, hey, guys, I want to put up a questionnaire about these objections. And suddenly the conversation derived into saying that, you know what, it, we don't need to debate these people. They're too stupid to do to understand us. And that was something that we debated for some time. And people saying, you know, it's very easy to debate them. They're all dumb. And then what happens is that a lady comes into our meeting and just quietly sits in the corner. And about 20 minutes later, as we're all debating this, uh, somebody asks her, so what's your name? Why are you here? And she says, yeah, my name is this. I'm a believer. And... And uh, somebody asked her, why do you believe? And she says, well, it, it makes me feel good. And nobody was able to reply to that. Yeah. Nobody. And I was like, see, guys, it, you really have to understand that there's a difference between theoretical skepticism and actual practical skepticism, the ability to debate, the ability to explain why skepticism is important. Nobody could do that. But neither did they want to go in and think about it and compile a questionnaire and that was so, that was just a wonderful demonstration of how that happens. So, uh, yeah, so uh, social media is good, but I think that it's not enough. It's just one of the tools. You mentioned um, the, the skeptic movement in the USA uh, starting in the 70s. One of the, the first great uh, pe people among them was Carl Sagan. What about Russia? I'm from Hungary, and even on the first show, um, Gabor uh, talked about how it all started, because with the political changes in, in the beginning of the 90s uh, came a new era of uh, open approach to everything, every new idea, and... Um, this new age phenomena as well and there had to be some kind of force against that did it not happen in russia at the beginning of the 90s yeah that's a very typical narrative uh when describing what happened uh although i have to tell you that i don't really buy it so in the beginning of the 90s it is common to say that with the free market many ideas began to flow and many new age people began to surface. I think this is partially true. Of course, there is a certain grain of truth to that. But if uh, when I studied many of these gurus of New Age uh, and their story, they actually started in the 80s even. So I'm not exactly sure if this is the only aspect here. Uh, and as a fact, I know that uh, common people would normally go to healers anyway. So perhaps there were no big names, there were no megastars of uh, parapsychology 
but there were mini stars all over USSR as well, and this is very well documented. Even on the government level, there were known parapsychologists that would heal uh, the leaders. Uh, so I would, I guess that it's only about the megastars, and it's important to note that the megastar era was kind of short, whereas in United States. We had Uri Geller starting, what, 80s, 70s? And he was a megastar, right? He has influenced many people, including actually many magicians. Uh, There was a very short period of time, like the 90s, maybe. Yeah, maybe the 90s, I guess. And then with the coming of the internet to everyday life, all these gurus became smaller. And we again see the uh, resurgence of local new age healers, new age like lecturers, And right now on TV, you generally don't see any big stars anymore. So that that would be my take on it. Okay. And how how did you personally get involved uh, in the skeptic movement? Well, I never meant to to get involved. To be honest, Uh, I was uh, I grew up in a family that uh, was actually believing in a new age movement, in a certain new age movement, which is actually not that popular anymore, but which was very big in the nineties. Uh, and uh, we also were kind of religious. I'm saying kind of, like not too orthodox, but religion was always there as well. And that was because the New Age movement itself was somehow saying that, yeah, religion also matters. That's what many New Age theories do, they say. They they take in everything they can. And so uh, I was in that situation, and uh, that was a period of my life where, for example, I would not go to doctors, I would have certain health issues, thankfully not very serious, but health issues that would uh, kind of make degrade the quality of my life, but that I would not go in a fix because according to my beliefs, I was not supposed to do that. I was supposed to fix my aura, to do other things like spiritual healing, but I was not supposed to go to doctors. And so eventually, as I started developing critical thinking, uh, I actually wrote up an article on the New Age movement there my family was involved in for a long time. And while writing the article, I did research that turned over my worldview. All I did was really just look around the internet, look up scientific data, and I found out that all of this is basically not true. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was really a critical moment in my life because I never, uh, starting when I started writing the article, I was meaning to just point out some of the little things that I did not agree. And when I started doing the research, I found out that basically most of it is a lie. And then while doing research through the course of several months, I learned a lot about the world of parapsychology, about critical thinking. And by the end of the year, I was like, wait a minute, I know so much about this. I want to put this to some use. And I started looking at the Russian internet and I saw that there, were, there was almost no systematic reviews of anything Russian-related, like Russian New Age movements or gurus that operate in Russia. And I started writing up articles, research articles. And that's, that's when I set up a website with those articles, and then I decided to start up meetings. So definitely at this point in time, there were some skeptical projects, but uh, I, I'm not aware of any projects that actually created meetups or something like that. And uh, when you started this, uh, when was when was it exactly? Uh, which year are we talking about? It's 2013. Okay. So March of 2013 was 
the first meeting. So the change, the, the swift from, from one to one side to the other was a gradual change for you. But is that when it really ended, that uh, process in 2013? Yeah, it, actually, I do have a date, which I usually don't disclose because this is a very personal date for me. It's just a date. Okay. But there is a date at which point in time I became an atheist because even after I went through uh, saying that, okay, new age is not correct, even Christianity is not correct, I still had some deistic ideas of some sort. And then mm -hmm. uh, watching atheist experience, I remember this date Exactly. I remember this moment when I was listening to a particular argument. And although that argument never was, never meant anything to me, it was at that point that I thought, that's it. I'm an atheist. I don't believe that was like the last drop, the last drop of my faith in anything uh, without supporting evidence. And then there were, uh, it, was, it was followed by two, three weeks of uh, both joy and terror, because if most of your adult life you believe that you have a soul that does not die then you have pretty like complicated situation there you understand suddenly that you will die and that's something that some believers need to cope with is there a social aspect of this as well because if you, if you you must feel rather alone then if you're surrounded by family and friends and they, they all have a certain belief and you are suddenly out of that wouldn't you make you feel very lonely not really so first of all the reason why i became more critical was because i stopped living with my family and i was able to think for myself and actually one of the uh, motivations to start a skeptic society was because i figured that out basically by myself but also reading materials on the internet and you know getting some opinions of people who think similarly uh, and so I wanted to do that for other people as well. So, K Kirill, um, you did mention earlier that um, we, when you started um, the uh, podcast and, and, and the Skeptic Society, you did some uh, writings and articles on various um, subjects. And one of the um, uh, things you wrote about was the uh, Nina Kulagina mm -hmm. case. Um, would you tell us uh, briefly about this? Uh, because it became somewhat of a phenomenon in Russia. Yeah, actually, this, I guess, is one of the biggest wins that uh, we managed to to have uh, because Nina Kulagina is uh, popular not only in Russia, but outside of Russia as well. James Randi actually took part in debunking her. There are several videos available on YouTube where he shows that, obviously taken from the original TV programs. And Nina Kulagina is interesting in that it is said that her phenomena is supported by actual scientists. And you go to the Wikipedia pages of those scientists, and it's very, very reliable, right? These guys look very reliable. They have actual published papers. They're big scientists. And they say that they support Kalagina, that they have tested her. They made controlled experiments and have shown that her telekinesis and other powers uh, could not be explained by the physics that they know. And this is a very powerful claim. It is, I, th I think it is not the videos that make Nina Kulagina case so special, but the claims from scientists. And of course, USSR, to many people, especially in the West, is a very close country, mysterious, and definitely very scientific, at least in the minds of people. And when Soviet scientists say that they've tested a parapsychology person and their tests came out positive, well, that's, that's, 
there you go. There, there's a megastar for you. The, my initial interest towards Kulagina was that I did not like the explanation that James Randi gave. Uh, what he did was show how she could have done it. But his methods employed magician's methods. And my question was always, how would she know? Because if we're talking about an invisible thread, which was what Randy was showing on the video, you have to learn and to know how to handle the magician's thread. It's not as simple. It's actually very complicated. And uh, there were many, many generations of magicians and their thinking that went into developing the techniques with working with the invisible thread. And I just did not believe that Kulagina could do that. Nevertheless, I did sort of start researching her. I did go through a lot of materials, and I found out that actually all the claims that the scientists have made were dubious at best. For, for the listeners, could you please explain what the claims were that she could do? Yes, that's, that's a very good question. So let's go through them. So one of the claims, one of the most popular claims for Kulagina was that she could move objects with her mind, telekinesis. Uh, you would typically see her moving smaller objects, definitely not magnetic in nature, that's important, uh, but some magnetic as well. Uh, and uh, then yeah, she was claimed to be able uh, to burn your skin just by touching it. She could leave a mark on your skin. Uh, then she could uh, she could have she could read signs without seeing them, and there were many many other claims like she could heal, she could predict things, but they were these claims are much less uh, clear. Let's say uh, one of the most popular claims is of course telekinesis. That's the claim that she's known for around the world. Are you writing in English? So I actually wrote up material on Kulagina in English. And uh, I guess that most of the material that I do plan to write on skepticism will probably be in English because now I don't want to limit it to Russian audience. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to Kulagin, I really wanted it to be in English because this is not just Russian skeptics win. It's, it's uh, international skeptics win. So let me, let me tell you what happened later on. So, so remember, I told you that I was not happy with James Randi demonstration. It did show one thing that it could be done without magic. That's what basically he's shown. He was not claiming this is how she did it. He just said it could be done this way. And you see the result is the same. Uh, but I was always sort of saying, no, but I mean, how could she know? Is, is this how she done? And so then after we ran this article on Kulagina, we actually had a week of telekinesis. And during this week, we had special meetings during our meeting, we had a special seminar in Kulagina where we would look at the videos and analyze certain discrepancies that we see there. And uh, so the, we would also make other demonstrations, we would uh, compile videos. That was a very fun week, actually. And uh, after that, I got a, uh, an email from a person who said that he is a professional magician. His name was Renid. <laughs> sort of like Randy, right? <laughs> no, yeah. but his, his name was uh, Otar Renid. And he said that he believes that he knows how she did it. And then I'm like, okay, go ahead. And then I'm reading what he's saying. And I instantly realize, yes, this is like the best hypothesis I've ever read because it finally puts it all together. It explains how a, a common woman, and by common I mean not a professional magician, 
and a person who's not acquainted with professional magicians, how a common person would know these things, would be able to pull it off, how nobody would see her, and then finally he provides a video evidence for this. And so his idea was very simple, that she used threads. She would tie a knot at the end of the thread, and then she would throw the knot on the table and cover it up with an object. And many of the objects that she used, in fact, all the objects ever seen to move, share this one characteristic. They're sort of cap-like. There are caps of some sort so that they can be put on top of a knot. And the knot could be very small. And then she just moves her leg, and the thread is tied to her leg, and the object moves. She's waving her hands, but nobody's looking at her legs under the table and her feet. And then mm-hmm. she moves her foot, and the, the object moves. If you look at her videos, objects move only towards her. And that's also a key thing. Uh, there are, in order to, so, th- so something like this might be very unconvincing to people because they will instantly think, okay, how would you do this? But the thing is that when we look at videos, we only see the end result. What we don't know, but what actually even supporters of Kulagina would readily tell you, and they do tell this in books, which they wrote about her, was that all these experiments literally took hours. She would sit there for two hours, and it would not work, and then suddenly it works. So she has plenty of time to make sure that people are not focused anymore, that she could do her thing, and she needs to throw a knot and then instantly cover it. It would not be in view for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I guess the most important thing that uh, Renit has given us was actual video footage where you can see the knot. Mm. And you see the knot jump towards her from under the object that she was moving before. And that was something that nobody ever seen before. Uh, like The video itself was public, but nobody watched it that way because nobody had this idea that you could do this. And so... Uh, so I have a paper that I put up currently on social media, actually. I hope that word does get around. Uh, several people have already made podcasts about it. So so that was a big case. It, it, it was, Kirill, and it sounds like you might have, well, uh, made a real damage in her reputation. I mean, have you? And um, is, is the public in, in, in Russia aware? Difficult to say. So um, I guess that, first of all, she's no longer a hit, right? So she is around the Internet. She is, the videos of her are around on the, on the Internet, on YouTube, and people who openly support her are not numerous. She's not being spoken about on TV. Perhaps an occasional pseudo-documentary will come out uh, that will tell us that actually there is such a phenomenon so I guess that uh, things that we did, which are now readily available on the Internet, uh, will have a lasting effect. Does she still have a lot of followers? Because she, she died 25 years ago. Yeah, I think she has a lot of followers, mm. yeah. But, I mean, again, these are not followers that are actively doing something. These are just people that are convinced by mm. her. There's, like, no movement. There's no group or anything like this. Mm. There are just some bloggers that, that could say, you know, this is the case. Or some people who would say, yeah, but, you know, post a video on YouTube and you have, uh, I don't know, 370,000 views or something and people in comments will generally support. So, so, so she's, most, she's more used like an example that this is possible, right? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. exactly.
Um, I also want to talk a little bit about um, some video projects that you uh, participated in. Um, I looked um, on online on your uh, Skeptic Society uh, website, and it seems like you you produced quite a few videos actually. Um, some of them are debates, some of them are something else. Um, will you tell us about the most exciting project you were involved in in, in that area? Videos. Yeah, I mean, videos are important, and they were initially important, but they're more difficult to produce, of course, because you've got to have a normal camera, that kind of stuff. One of the things that we did was uh, a program called Critical View, uh, and it was a program which was a live show through Google Hangouts, which was just recorded and people could watch it later, where we would generally answer questions or cover some topics. Uh, and there were a series of smaller videos, either proving a point of some sort or just... Uh, answering a common question. Uh, I would say that I'm not too happy with, uh, with what we did with video, not because what we did was bad, but because what we did was uh, something that I really wanted to expand on. Uh, for example, I always dreamed of making a call-in show where people would actually call in with their arguments and we would talk in real time. But uh, I never got into actually realizing that on a technical level. And what, what um, future plans do you have? And uh, where can people follow your, your work? Yeah, this is, a, this is a very tough question because right now I'm at the crossroads. Uh, so I'm, I'm not doing much of uh, Skeptic Society in Russia anymore. And it's very difficult for me to do. And uh, I'm unlikely to be highly involved because it's very difficult to be highly involved when you're not living there anymore. Uh, on the other hand, uh, of course, I do have a lot of skeptical experience to this day. So I'm actually thinking about how to use that, and I haven't decided anything yet. So I guess that right now I can't, I can't give you any locations, at least not for the English-speaking audience, where I, can, where I can show anything yet. Are you in the contact with any of the local uh, skeptic groups um, in Germany yet? I know you've only moved uh, recently. Yeah, I actually tried doing that. Of course, the language would be a barrier here. I'm planning to start learning German very soon. Uh, but before that, it's very difficult to get involved into some local activism. But it is interesting because very often as I go around the streets in Berlin, I see either an acupuncture something or an astrology something or alternative medicine something. And so it is a challenge. Uh, what advice would you give to um, people who are kind of on the fence and sort of skeptically minded, uh, but don't know where and how to get involved? Well, my advice would be to get involved on the local level, actually, because uh, the local level is where actual living people are concerned. You know, if you if you have an ability to set up a meeting in your town, do that. Uh, and if you want to grow later on, that's no problem. You'll be able to do that probably. But if you start small, there's first of all a bigger chance that you'll succeed. And second of all, there's a bigger chance that you will see the fruits of your labor very quickly. And when after doing several episodes of the podcasts, we got an email from a lady who said that uh, listening to our podcast, along with other materials, but listening to our podcast as well, she decided to leave a new age group. That was, that was such a profound feeling. And uh, so I think that helping out locally would be the best thing to start. 
And then once you've established some sort of base locally, you can grow if you want. But these small local projects are important. And if you go to a smaller city and you know that there's a skeptical group, this is big help. And what do you think of the large-scale things? Because, uh, as we all know, there is the European Council of uh, Skeptical Organizations that is uh, um, trying to facilitate communication between these uh, larger-scale organizations. So uh, where do you see the role of such an organization in the future? Uh, Large-scale operations are not that difficult, that would be my comment on it. It's not that difficult. Running a conference is not that difficult. Uh, you will be surprised at how big things you can do if you simply set your mind to it. So I think that large-scale things are possible, and especially if you already have some organizational experience in doing some local stuff, you can do it. Now, the, the only problem, I would guess, with large-scale operations is that going into it, you have to be very conscious that right now you're in the public eye. And let's say that if you're running a large-scale operation, uh, like a skeptical group, a, a conference that you announced to be annual, you want to make sure that you are going to do that, that you're able to do that, they have the resources, and that you will not back up in like a year. And everybody will say, oh, remember those skeptics, they're already closed. So I would say that running a large-scale operation, a large-scale group simply uh, has more responsibility on you. Uh, some things that uh, uh, that you do understand as soon as you go into activism of any sort is that it's pretty rough out there. You have to really know what you're doing. You have to really be focused. And I think that one of the uh, mistakes that anybody can make going into some, into some sort of activism is to underestimate the difficulty and the focus that it, need, that it takes. So although I absolutely encourage everybody to participate, we live in a world that does not have too many skeptics yet. So if you want to participate, do that. But it's only about if you're doing something large-scale or you have the ambition to do it, uh, I just think that people have to take it very seriously. Yes, Good. I think we agree. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, uh, I think this wraps up um, our interview with uh, Kirill Alferov. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, after our interview, I'd like you, Yelena, to enlighten us about yet another logical fallacy. Yes. So today's um, fallacy I want to talk about is a, a fallacy called the blind authority fallacy, also known as... So every fallacy has got like many, many, many names. Uh, yeah. So bear with me. So also known as blind obedience fallacy, the team player appeal, the Nuremberg defense, the divine authority, the appeal to blind authority, and argument from blind authority. So there's many, many different names you might know this fallacy by. So this fallacy basically, what, what, what basically it means is asserting that a proposition is a true, true solely on the authority making the claim. While extreme cases um, also ignore any counter evidence, no matter how strong. And the authority could be a parent, a coach, a boss at work, a military leader, or a divine authority. One of the examples that we, I could give as, as a blind authority fallacy is your honor. The Bible clearly says that 
physics wizards and mediums are to be stoned to death and that it is our responsibility to do so to do so leviticus 2027 therefore i had every right to try to stone diane warwick whatever her whoever she was and her psychic friends to death um, and this kind of thing would go on quite a lot during the Inquisition time, obviously, when people were quoting the Bible and burning people for no reason. Um, and I mean, I guess like we don't have to go as far back as 15th century. Uh, there's a lot of um, blind authority fallacies going on uh, right now with some of the world leaders um, proposing the most ridiculous things and uh, people following them only because they have this position of authority. Yeah. It's an interesting one because it's something that we skeptics very often get accused of. That people are saying, just because you heard Richard Dawkins saying it, you blindly believe in everything he says. And that's, of course, not true at all. Which and is not also, true, yeah. No, it's not true. He, he's wrong about a lot of things. And I, I'm not uh, afraid to say he is. And also, yeah. when we appeal to or say, okay, but scientists, so-and-so, they say this and this, say, okay, but... We don't believe it because just one scientist say it. That would be appealing to authority. But if we appeal to the consensus, if like 97% of all scientists say it is in a, in a certain way, then we, for now at least, assume that they are correct. I think I think this is this is a kind of an appeal that um, that are used very widely by uh, media. It often happens um, that um, people are using so-called experts from totally different fields. Um, like I've I've experienced that with uh, creationists on many many occasions. That um, they quote um, scientists, okay, mathematicians, uh, chemists, physicists, but when they don't ask biologists and evolutionary biologists about questions regarding evolution that's wrong but still it is very widely used that okay it ha this person has a doctorate on on a certain field let's ask him yeah but that's a different field for god's sake mm. yeah um well thank you yelena i think uh this brings us pretty well to our next segment uh which is going to be an interview i attended the wikipedia science conference this september and uh we're going to be playing one of the interviews i recorded at the conference Hello, this is Andras Pinter from the Hungarian Skeptic Society and a member of Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, reporting from uh, Wikipedia Science Conference, which is a great conference. And here with me is Melissa Hyten from the University of Edinburgh. You just gave a talk today titled Changing the Ways the Stories Are Told. One wouldn't um, guess it, but it was mostly about the involvement of women in science and Wikipedia editing. Uh, so welcome. And uh, first of all, I'd like you to, to uh, say something about yourself, uh, your, the work that you do, and how you came about uh, dealing with women in science. Thank you. Um, I'm director of IT at Edinburgh University. And um, my interest in Wikipedia actually came from having organized a Women in Science Editathon a few years ago when I worked at Oxford University. And I enjoyed it so much and learned so many new skills 
that until that moment, I think I knew that people were allowed to edit Wikipedia, but I didn't know how to get started. So having an organized editathon with people, with friends and colleagues, and a topic to help us get started meant that I shifted from never having edited to, to having edited and being able to point to something that I had contributed. And this was a very important shift for me and my skills. And now what I like to do is to make sure that as many other women as possible can also have that experience. And I am able to, in my role at the universities, organize women in science editathons for my staff and for the students and the researchers nearby so that they can all learn to get started at editing Wikipedia. That sounds great, but you shocked the audience with some very interesting figures, some of which are really surprising. Yes, it's true, and I think um, it should be a, a matter of concern that although Wikipedia is a wonderful, um, wonderful place, and it's all about open knowledge and sharing knowledge, and it's about disrupting all of the traditional models as to who owns knowledge and where it comes from and who can have access to it. So the underpinning idea is, is amazing. And yet we have somehow, in quite a short time, only 10 years, created a place where less than 15% of the people who edit Wikipedia are women, or declare as women. That was shocking. Not to me. <laughs> only. <laughs> And that means that, uh, so lots of people have different opinions as to why that might be, but I think it's certainly worth addressing, because if any part of our society is so, ex so exclusively male, uh, that it's worth thinking about what the barriers to access for women might be, because if there is gender bias in the people who are editing, or a gender um, imbalance in the people who are editing, then it means that the coverage of topics may be skewed. So there may be less coverage of topics that are particularly of women's interest, but also there may be less coverage of topics in ways that women would be interested in them. Or it may just become biased reporting of topics. And the technology absolutely allows us all to edit. So what, it's not the technology that's stopping people from doing this, from women from taking part. And it's not that women don't love knowledge. It's not that women don't love science, or editing, or writing, or arguing about things. So this is what interests me, is to think about what are the structural issues that make the editing spaces of Wikipedia a place that women don't want to spend time and don't want to return to repeatedly. And what do we do about it? The, the, the keynotes um, yesterday and today talk about how the internet is, is us. Yeah. So what have we what done <laughs> to get us through this situation and what must we do now to try to at least get some more women or a greater proportion of, of the women who are in our universities, who are, you know, in the public, it doesn't have to be students, but I happen to work in universities, but we have as many women at university as we do men, and I would like all of them to feel that they are equally able to enjoy editing Wikipedia, which is so, so exciting and interesting, and you see from the colleagues at this conference how much they enjoy it. Yeah, but you don't only wish that there were uh, much more women involved, uh, you even do something about it. Uh, could you tell me some, some more on it? So, 
Thinking about the kind of things that we can do to introduce more women to editing Wikipedia, one of the ways that we do this is we organize social events, our editathons, um, around a topic that will attract some people into the room um, where they can get started. And women in science, or the, the completing of articles and biographies about women scientists from the past, or, or current women scientists, or um, the history of medicine, um, gets people into the room, gets women into the room, not exclusively women, the editorathons are open to anybody, but you attract a, a group of, of women who will spend a very nice afternoon together learning how to edit Wikipedia in the hope, I do this in the hope that they will then go on and edit Wikipedia in a range of topics. They are usually novice editors. They may be very um, tech savvy, so a lot of them have good internet skills and good library, uh, they have a library background, but have never seen Wikipedia as a thing that they want to um, engage with. Okay. Um, so the, you mentioned my presentation title, which was about changing the way the stories are told. And what I'm concerned about is that there is a lot of women's science history or um, women in the history of medicine, particularly, where the story of the experience of the first few women who tried to study medicine at, at the University of Edinburgh was very poorly covered. There was almost nothing in Wikipedia. So if our students at University of Edinburgh wondered what kind of organization they were joining or what the history of, of medicine at Edinburgh was, they would miss out on the fact that, in fact, Edinburgh was the first university to matriculate women in the UK to study medicine. And there was a group of seven women who took on the whole of the established university to try to convince them to be allowed to study. And they were allowed to study. But their time in that study was very difficult. They fought every day. They fought for clinical placements. They fought for support from supervisors. They fought to sit their exams. They were subject to people calling them all kinds of awful names. There was a mob who rioted to try to stop them sitting their exams, and they kept going. And I think that putting material and stories, putting the information about the history of women in science onto Wikipedia, where young women, just, you know, young women in the public, women and girls in schools, when they are thinking of studying medicine, it's important that they can see the history of the women who've studied medicine before them, because they will join a community of women medics now and that's what I mean by changing the way the stories are told. If people are looking, the public look to Wikipedia as a place to find information, and we need to make sure that the information about those stories is there, so that when young women tell each other the stories, we've provided the supporting facts. Great, and when those Wikipedia articles are put together, when we, we were chatting after your talk, you mentioned uh, that um, you can encourage these people who attended the, these uh, editathons um, with uh, making them able to show around what they, they, they put out there so they, that there is something they can be proud of. Do you do some, some kind of follow-up on that? Yes, we do. It's very important, I think, to celebrate what's going on in the room for any new learner. So if you think about any kind of new learning that people do, you need to structure the... Um, learning interaction structure, the class or yeah. the event, very closely. You need to have people there to help, teachers and support. Um, 
you need to have deliverable, uh, doable learning outcomes for the people in the room so that they can feel a sense of achievement and success at the end of the day. And editathons are no different from that, and that's what I find interesting. What I also find very interesting about what happens is the engagement. If people are engaged with the topic, they will continue to edit and add more things and share ideas with other people that they've met at the editathon and work together collaboratively to improve this information. And because the ultimate aim of this is to get more women who will stay in the Wikipedia editing community, who will join it and stay, so yes, we need to do ongoing support. So we have at Edinburgh University every month a meetup where the people who came to the Editathon and anybody else can come and get together and have more cake and tea and chat um, and edit more. So we're maintaining us, trying to support them steadily. But what I'm researching, and this is what's really interesting about Wikipedia, of course, is you can track whether the people who came to the Editathon edit again. Because when we sign up for the editathon, when we do it, we put our, we create a profile, we put our names in, and then of course, using the technology of Wikipedia, you can see what that person has edited and when they. So, we're looking particularly to see whether the editors who come to the initial events sustain their interaction, and the thinking about how to sustain that is what I think is interesting now, and that's what we're researching. And you um, encouraged other people to, to set up these uh, editathons, and uh, there were quite a brainstorming activity uh, at the end of the talk, uh, the Q&A session, about, about mm. uh, possible topics that can, can uh, generate some audience and generate some attendance. Yes, I did. I asked the audience to think of topics or things that they might do in their institutions. Many of the people in the room work at universities. Um, and I think it's also important to remember that universities, as large employing organizations at the moment, are subject to a certain amount of societal and governmental pressure to show that they are making moves to ensure that women are equally represented in the senior roles in the institution, that there isn't a pay gap, and that they're making particular positive moves to support women into science and technology careers. There were many ideas came up in the audience, and I think that that's um, excellent. I look forward to, to hearing about those editathons, but what I am keen is for people to manage to link it takes time and effort to organize editathons, and so I think that people who are doing that should be supported by their institution because this is a big part of digital skills in the workplace for, for women. To wrap it up, um, first of all, thank you for the, for the great talk and uh, thanks for your time. To finish with, I'd like you to, to point out a few uh, places where people can, can find out something about your project and, and, and these editathons. The best thing to do to find out more, which is what I do, is to contact a Wikimedian who knows about editathons. Um, there are many Wikimedians in residence and there are yeah. many wonderful people here at this conference who know about editathons and I have been very lucky to have the support of very knowledgeable Wikimedians to organize the editathons and to provide the expert knowledge. I just um, come up with the, the venue and the idea and the people and the cake and what's really important is the coming together of the Wikimedians and the participants. Great. Uh, Melissa Hyten, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Pontus.
I hear there is quite a prominent figure out there who's been really wrong lately. Yes. So today's prize for being really wrong goes to Pope Francis Ooh. himself. Oh. So the, the background is that the Vatican recently announced that Mother Teresa is to be canonized on the 4th of September next year. That means she's going to be counted as an official saint. Uh, before we start, we should look at into who she was. She was born in 1910 in the city of Skopje, which at the time belonged to the Ottoman Empire and now is the capital of the Republic of Macedonia. Uh, when she was 18, she went to Ireland to join uh, an abbey to learn English and to prepare to become a missionary, which was what she wanted. The year after, in 1929, she went to India, where she eventually came to do most of her work near Calcutta. In 1950, she got permission by the Vatican to start her own congregation, which became known as the Missionaries of Charity, which grew into an international organization that had 4,000 members when she died in 1997. She also received the Nobel Prize in 1976. So, what's the problem then? For skeptics who have heard of or read Christopher Hitchens' book, The Missionary Position, it's no news that Mother Teresa has received quite a lot of criticism for her work and her methods. Far from being this saint-like saviour of the poor, she has been accused of glorifying suffering instead of relieving it, and using very little of the vast donations to actually help the poor, and for secretly baptising persons of other faiths on their deathbeds. She also had very fundamentalist views when it came to abortion and marriage, which is really very problematic when you're trying to help poor women. She has been criticized for receiving money from very dubious sources, like the, the dictator of Haiti at the time, Jean-Claude Duvalier, baby doc in 1981. Uh, this is money that was actually stolen from the poor in his country. Many reports claim that she often denied pain relief to the dying in her hospices, claiming that suffering was a gift from Jesus. And she has, in her own words from 1981, I think it's very beautiful for the poor to accept their lot. I think the world is being much helped by the suffering of the poor people. How do you like that? I don't. I have, um, I have read half of that book and it's absolutely appalling and... Uh, it's heartbreaking and just horrifying what she did to people, to yeah. those poor. Uh, and there's mo uh, quite a lot of those people, obviously, because they were so poor. They didn't have a choice. They've got, they had nowhere to go other than stay in those terrible conditions and just die in total agony. Mm. F I mean, food rations were very small. And uh, I've heard at least one or, or read about at least one eyewitness who claims to have seen a small baby die of starvation. And the, the estimates that have been made is, is that only 5 to 7% of the $100 million that was collected was actually given to, to catering for the poor. Uh, and, and, and also then, despite her statements about suffering being a gift from Jesus, she did seek modern expensive treatment for herself when she fell ill and before she died. Yeah. Mm. Nice. So, go sanctify her. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's ridiculous, yeah. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Yeah. And I should 
point out too that even though Christopher Hitchens has been her most famous critic, she, he is far from the only one. In fact, uh, Wikipedia has a whole separate page called Criticism of Mother Teresa, uh, where I urge everybody to go in and read more. So for glorifying and celebrating someone who was, in Christopher Hitchens's words, a fanatic, a fundamentalist and a fraud, Pope Francis gets today's prize for being really wrong. To finish up this episode, Yarana, could you give us a quote, please? Yes, I can. And today's quote came from Bertrand Russell, his sceptical essays. William James used to preach the will to believe. For my part, I should wish to preach the will to doubt. What is wanted is not the will to believe, but the will to find out, which is the exact opposite. Yay. Great yeah. stuff. So there we go, well, guys. To finish up, let me thank you, both of you. Thank you. Right, thanks, guys, and um, Happy New Year's. Um, Happy New Year. And hope the new year will bring many more episodes, many more exciting events, news um, and discoveries. Yeah. And thanks to the listeners as well. Hope to be delivering the show to you in the next year as well. Bye. You told me that aliens really exist. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, please send us your feedback comments or death threats to info at the esp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu, and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can Did you just fall off the toilet? No, my fucking mic- microphone just fell off the fucking toilet. You know, the good thing is that it, it, it didn't end up in the toilet. So if that could have been... Okay, so um, yes, um, Stephen Hawking launches... launches lunch? lunch. He had lunch once. I wonder, I wonder what he has. <laughs> You have to pronounce this right. It's launch, not lunch. Launch. Launch. <laughs> no, no, we're not here. Uh, launched on the fourteenth of December. Ha! Launched. Launched. <laughs> <laughs>